Isaiah, this small book. Find the book of Jonah and look before it to find the book of Obadiah. Tonight I want us to begin a brief study of the most minor of the minor prophets. The minor prophets, which make up the end of our Old Testaments, are not minor in importance. So don't hear that the wrong way. We call the minor prophets minor prophets simply because these books are shorter than the major prophets. And of the minor prophets, Obadiah is the shortest of them all. In fact, at 21 verses, uh, Obadiah is the shortest book in all of the Old Testament. Sadly, Obadiah is also a book of the Bible in which many Christians, including many pastors, know very little. Uh, because of its short size and because of where it is in our Old Testaments, this is a book that gets largely ignored. It is neglected. Um, I wondered, do you know what the book of Obadiah is about? Are you aware of its message? I think we will find that though this book is small, it carries a big punch. Its message is a big one, and it is an important one for us. Uh, the book of Obadiah is named after the prophet who received this vision from the Lord. It's named after the man who wrote these words down. Uh, the name Obadiah simply means servant of the Lord. And to be honest, we know absolutely nothing about the man who wrote this book. The name Obadiah appears 20 times in the Old Testament, and it refers to at least a dozen different men. But we have no evidence that any of the other men named Obadiah in the Old Testament is the same as this Obadiah who wrote this prophecy. In fact, scholars tell us that Obadiah was a very common name in ancient Israel. So we know nothing about the man who received this vision. We know very little uh, about when this book was written. In fact, there's a, a, a pretty heated debate over when this book was written. What we do know is that the backdrop of this book is that the nation of Edom had participated in some way in an attack on Jerusalem. So we know that that's the backdrop. Edom had participated in an attack on Jerusalem. Now, what attack is in view? Well, when we look to the rest of the Bible to find an attack in which Edom participated, we find explicit references to the nation of Edom joining with the Babylonians in that great attack on Judah and Jerusalem in the year 586 B.C., this is the great attack that uh, Jeremiah prophesied about and then witnessed for himself and laments in the book of Lamentations. Uh, this is when Jerusalem was held siege for such a long time. There was the great famine. We've talked before about the mothers eating their own children. Uh, the temple was utterly destroyed. Uh, we know that the Edomites participated with the Babylonians in that attack. So, for example... 
Psalm 137.7 says, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. Listen to what God said to the Edomites through the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 35, concerning their attack with the Babylonians, God says directly to the Edomites, I will lay your cities waste, and you shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you cherished perpetual enmity and gave over the people of Israel to the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, at the time of their final punishment. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you, because you did not hate bloodshed. Therefore, blood shall pursue you. And so we have strong references in other places of the Old Testament where it is clear that God was angry with Edom for participating in this attack on Jerusalem. Problem is, there's some reasons to think that that's not the attack that's in view in Obadiah. In fact, many think that the view that the attack that's in view in Obadiah is a much older attack. Um, in 2 Kings 8, we read about the days when King Jehoram reigned over Judah. And for many years before, Edom had been under the authority of Judah. In fact, they were paying Judah a tribute. Well, in the days of King Jehoram, Edom rebelled, and they staged an attack against Jerusalem. Now, Jehoram was able to defend the city of Jerusalem against Edom, but he lost control over that nation. And so the Edomites were no longer paying tribute. They became again their own independent nation. And soon after, the Philistine attacked, the Philistines attacked Jerusalem, along with the Arabs who joined with the Philistines, and many think that also the Edomites were with this uh, combined attack on the city of Jerusalem. We read about it in 2 Chronicles 21.17. We're told they carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house. They took away his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoahaz, his youngest son. And so it's possible, though not certain, that Edom participated in that attack and that that's what is in view in the book of Obadiah. Now, the main reason some people think this older attack is in view is because the minor prophets tend to be organized from older to later. So think about the minor prophets in your mind, right? We have Hosea, Amos, Jonah, and Micah, all from the 9th and 8th centuries. They're the oldest of the minor prophets, right? These lead up to the period when that northern kingdom of Israel will be destroyed, right? Then you have Nahum and Habakkuk and Sephaniah. They belong to the 7th century B.C., leading up to when the kingdom of Judah would be destroyed. And then you have those last three books of the Minor Prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And these are all the books of prophecy that were written during and after the exile, when Judah comes back to Jerusalem, preparing for the days of Christ. And so the Minor Prophets appear to be in a fairly chronological order, except that right there in the middle of the oldest minor prophets are Joel and Obadiah. These two books are the hardest for us to figure out where they fall and when, when the, their author uh, received their visions. 
the fact that they are included with those first group of minor prophets seems to imply that when the Old Testament canon was being put together, those who organized it believed that these two books were older books and belonged with those first four. If they were right, then probably that older attack during the days of King Jehoram is the one that Obadiah has in view. I will say there are many today who believe that probably Joel and Obadiah, though they're with the oldest of the minor prophets, many believe to think, think that they actually were written well after the attack of the Babylonians. So, just to say, there is controversy over when the book was written, but this much we know for sure. Edom had participated in an attack on Jerusalem, and God is responding to them in this book. Now, in, in case you hadn't figured it out yet, tonight's message is a purely introductory message. We're going to have four messages on Obadiah. This one, which is an introduction, and then three actually unpacking the text. But since this book of Obadiah is all about the Edomites, and everybody say Edomites. Edomites, Edomites, Edomites right? So since this book is about the Edomites and God's judgment on the Edomites, we need to take a few minutes to remember who the Edomites were. The father of the Edomites was who? Esau. Esau, right? The twin brother of Jacob. So we have here a people who are descended from Isaac. A people here who are descended from Abraham, right? They came from Esau, Israel, or Jacob's twin brother. Um, We are told in Genesis 25 that Jacob, Israel, and Esau, Edom, that they struggled with one another even while they were in the womb, and that this struggle within the womb was a sign of what was to come. Esau became known as Edom, which means red, because of the red stew that Esau received by trading his birthright to Jacob. Uh, Esau had his blessings stolen. When Jacob duped his blind father into thinking he was Esau and giving him the blessing of the, uh, that he, of the firstborn. Now, as you may remember from our study of these passages in Genesis, in these days, Jacob was a far more wicked man than Esau. In fact, when we were studying these passages in Genesis, we saw Esau show extraordinary forgiveness and kindness to Jacob after Jacob had treated Esau very wickedly and deceptively. However, it was Jacob's descendants that God chose to make his own special people. And Jacob became a changed man. Jacob became a man of faith. Jacob became a true child of God. But Esau did not. Esau left the promised land. And Esau settled what became uh, southern, southeastern Judah. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, Edom is Judah's southeastern neighbor. So if you can picture a map, and you may have one in the back of your Bible, it will show you where Edom was located. But basically, if you look at the, the nation of Israel and you look to their east, you have the Moabites up here, and to their southeastern part, you have the kingdom of Edom. Uh, Timan, Basra, and the capital Selah, also known as Petra, were the three major cities of the kingdom of Edom. Uh, The Horites dwelt in this land before Esau's people. So sometimes in the midst of the Bible, you will hear the nation of Edom referred to as the land of Hor. 
An even older name for the land of Edom was Seir. So sometimes you'll find Edom referred to in the scriptures as Seir or Mount Seir. Today we know this land that that, uh, was then called Edom, we know it as mostly the nation of Jordan uh, is where it is today. So here is the blessing slash prophecy that uh, Isaac gave to his son Esau about his future and the future of his descendants, the Edomites. Here is what Isaac said. Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. And so we find that prophecy fulfilled throughout Edom's history. Edom was uh, a nation of violence, a nation of the sword. And at various times, they did serve the people of Israel. And yet, as we talked about a while ago, there were times when they threw that yoke off of their neck and rebelled against the people of Israel and became their enemies. When Israel is coming out of Egypt, right, a brand new nation, they've been slaves to the Egyptians for all these years, and now with Moses leading them, Israel is coming out of Egypt Edom is already a well-established, organized, defended kingdom. Edom was a land of wealth, partly from copper mining, partly from trade along the king's highway, of which 70 miles of this famous highway of trade went through the kingdom of Edom. When the nation of Israel was coming out of Egypt, they wanted to get to Canaan, the promised land. They asked the people of Edom, they asked Edom if they could travel through their land to get to Canaan. Edom refused. Moses had even promised that they, would, that they would not turn off the road to the left or to the right, and that they would pay the people of Edom for every drop of water they drank. And Edom still refused to let the Israelites pass through their land into Canaan. Yet in Deuteronomy 23, God instructed Israel to treat Edom well. In fact, God told the people of Israel to remember that they are brothers with Edom. This was not the spirit of Edom. Edom continued to see themselves as the enemies of Israel. In fact, over and over again in the Old Testament, we see Edom harboring this, this continual hatred of Israel. And so Amos 1.11 says this, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Edom, and for four, I will, revoke, I will not revoke the punishment. Because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So God indicted the people of Edom for their perpetual anger and hatred of the people of Israel. Now Saul was the first king of Israel. And we are told in 1 Samuel 14 that Saul immediately led the Israelites in fighting their enemies and included in that list of enemies was the people of Edom. David fought and conquered the kingdom of Edom. That was a huge moment when Israel conquered Edom. Uh, One commentator notes that until that time, until the days of David, Edom must have been thought of as Israel's elder brother and that they appeared to be the stronger, uh, older, more developed nation. 
But by this battle, the elder was supplanted by the younger in a clear historical analogy to the Jacob-Esau parallel in Genesis. And from that point on, one can trace the bitter rivalry which is documented in the prophecy of Obadiah. Solomon had to put down a revolt from the people of Edom, but ultimately Solomon felt that his control over Edom was so complete that he chose to build a fleet of ships for the Israeli navy, so to speak, there in the kingdom of Edom. Edom revolted again under Jehoshaphat and broke free from Israel's reigns completely during the days of Jehoram. King Amaziah led Judah in conquering Edom again, only for Edom to break free again under King Ahaz. Edom then was conquered by the Assyrians, later the Babylonians, and they were ultimately driven east into what was the kingdom of Judah, now known as southern Palestine. So you see that there was this bitter rivalry, this bitter hatred between brothers, between Israel and Edom, that goes all the way through the Old Testament. But then... Thanks to the Assyrians and Babylonians, by the time we get to Jesus' day, the Edomites have moved. The Edomites are no longer living southeastern as the southeastern neighbor of Judah. They've actually moved into Judah. So that in the days of Jesus, if you look at a map of Palestine, the southern region of Palestine is called Idumea. Do you hear the, the sound, Edom? Idumea is the people of Edom. They've moved in. In fact, by that point, by the days of Jesus, the people of Edom had embraced Judaism. Um, the, probably the most famous Edomite in Jesus' day, the most famous Idumean, was King Herod the Great, the same one who sought to kill the baby Jesus during the Bethlehem Massacre. In fact, many say this was the pinnacle of the enmity, of the hatred between Edom and Israel, that you have this Edomite king seeking to kill the great Messiah of Israel. Later, the Idumeans joined with Israel in revolting against Rome, and just as ancient Israel was utterly destroyed by the Romans, so was the Idumeans. When Titus came, laid Israel to waste, destroyed the temple, so also he helped to destroy the Idumeans as a people. And really, from that point in time forward, the Edomites have ceased to exist. So there's your little history of the Edomites, the people that God is addressing in this book of Obadiah. Now what we're going to do next is actually read the book of Obadiah in its entirety. It's only 21 verses. But as I do, I want you to notice the structure of the book. So in verses 1 through 9, we're going to see God's declaration of coming judgment upon Edom. In verses 10 through 14, we're going to read the indictment where God declares the wicked things Edom has done and why it is that God's wrath is so kindled against them. And then in verses 15 through 21, we're going to see God declare how the day of Edom's defeat will also be the day of Israel's blessing and victory. I've seen many different outlines of this book, but the one I think that is easiest and most memorable is this. Verses 1 through 9 are God's verdict. Verses 10 through 14 declare Edom's violation. And verses 15 through 21 declare Israel's victory. So I'm going to give you that outline of the book again. Verses 1 through 9, God's verdict. Verses 10 through 14, Edom's violation. And then verses 15 through 21, Israel's victory. And if you're wondering what we're going to do in the next three sermons to unpack Obadiah, 
You've just seen the outline for the next three sermons. But let's read the book of Obadiah together. Beginning in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up! Let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, old Timan, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau. For the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors 
shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, why study this book? What are the implications of this book for us and our lives here today? Why, why spend time understanding this book's message? Well, friends, this book is about two peoples. This book is about a people who belong to God, Israel, and a people who are God's enemies, Edom. The true Israel, we learn from the New Testament, are those from every nation who know God and love God, submit to Christ and trust Christ. It is those who are in Christ who are the true Israel of God. But who is the true Edom? The true Edomites are all of those who live in rebellion against God. This theme stretches through the whole Bible, that all of humanity can be separated into two groups. From the very beginning, we have the the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. We have the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We have those who are Israel and those who are Edom. In fact, Obadiah himself points out that when the great day of the Lord comes against Edom, that judgment will come against all the other nations as well. That all who have rebelled against God and His people, who have treated them with hostility, they will receive the wrath of God. This is going to be our key as we seek to unpack the book of Obadiah. When we read of Israel in the book of Obadiah, we will understand that in its immediate context, it is referring to ancient Israel. But we will also understand that its most important and deepest meaning is about the Israel of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when we see in those last verses that the day of Edom's destruction is the day of Israel's victory, what we will really be reading about is the victory of Christ's people on the ultimate day of judgment. In the same way, when we read the book of Obadiah and we read concerning Edom, we will know that in the immediate context, it's referring to this ancient neighbor to Israel, but that its biggest and most deep meaning is about the wrath of God coming on all those who rebel against God, who are the enemies of God and His people. Now, just to show you that we're not wrong to read the book this way, let me show you just one example that when the apostles thought of Israel and Edom, Jacob and Esau, they thought in these terms. So look with me at Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and look with me at verse 6. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. What we have here is the apostle Paul addressing this question. Paul is addressing the question, why is it that so many Israelites rejected Christ? I mean, didn't God promise that He would be Israel's God and that they would be His people? And now Jesus the Messiah came to Israel and He preached and did these miracles and called people to believe on Him. And how did the vast majority of Israelites respond? Well, they crucified Him. They refused to believe in their own Messiah. And Paul, as he goes from town to town to town preaching the gospel, finds that over and over again the Jews are rejecting his message while various Gentiles are believing his message. How can this be? 
Has God's word about being Israel's God proven untrue? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 6 and 7. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So so Paul says first, God's word has not failed. And then he explains this by declaring that we need to change the way we think about Israel. That there is a physical Israel. There is a people who are biologically descended from Abraham. But Paul says not all of these are even the true Israel. Not everyone descended from Abraham is an Israelite. In fact, that's clear from the very beginning because Abraham's first son was Ishmael. And yet Ishmael, it was declared that it would be through Isaac that Abraham's offspring would be named, not through Ishmael. And so from the very start, we learned that not everyone physically descended from Abraham was going to be a Jew, was going to be one of God's true people. And then look at what Paul says in verse 8. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. It's a loaded verse. But when Paul says it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, he means that it is not those who are physically connected to Abraham who are God's children. No, it is the children of promise. That is, those chosen by God and promised to Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was not that every biological descendant of Abraham would be a part of God's people. Rather, God's promise to Abraham was that there would be a people given to him. So look at verse 9. Look at the promise. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. In other words, the son that was coming would come about by the special act of God. Abraham would try and take matters into his own hands. Abraham would try and make God's promise come true in his own power. And the result was Ishmael. And yet Ishmael was not approved by God. Ishmael did not become one of God's people. It is God who determines who are his. And Paul makes this very clear in verses 10 through 13. And this is what I really want us to see. So notice this. Verses 10 through 13. And not only so, But also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. What I want you to see is that Paul puts forward Jacob and Esau as a prototype, as a picture of God's election. It is clear that Paul was not mainly talking here about Jacob and Esau as individuals because he's answering a question about his fellow Jews. Paul, why have your fellow Jews not believed on Jesus? And basically what he's saying is the doctrine of election is the reason why there are some of my fellow Jews who are not true Jews. They are of Esau, not of Jacob, though they are descended from Jacob. He is saying that just as Jacob was chosen by God and not Esau, so there is the true Israel chosen by God and those who are not. 
Jacob, therefore, represents everyone from every tongue, tribe, and nation who by God's grace come to believe on Christ. Jacob represents all those in the love of God through Christ. That is the true Israel, the church of Jesus. Esau represents all those under the wrath of God. Esau represents all of those who are left to themselves in their own sins, all of those who will one day experience God's judgment. All right, turn back with me to Obadiah. Understand that this is the New Testament lens through which we now read the book of Obadiah. And here's why, where I kind of show my cards about why I wanted us to study this book for a few weeks. One of the main reasons that I want us to study Obadiah at this point in the life of our church is that I believe it would do us good to carefully consider the fate of those who are cut off from God. This book is a vivid reminder of how God feels concerning those who are lost, those who are hard-hearted, those who are still in their sins. And this book is a vivid reminder of the judgment that is in store for all of those who are outside of Christ. Unless by God's grace someone comes to believe the gospel, unless by God's grace someone turns from their wicked ways and trusts Christ, the kind of judgment The kind of condemnation that is described in the book of Obadiah is the kind of judgment that they will know. Friends, there is a sense in which the lost people of this world are our brothers and sisters. That is, just as Jacob and Esau sprang from one man, so all the people of this earth are children of Adam. And we who belong to God share the same flesh and blood with all of those in this world who do not belong to God. And they are like us. In fact, just as Jacob began life even more wicked than Esau, more vile than Esau, we have to acknowledge that many of us, we are not any better than any of the other people in this world who do not know God. And yet here we are as vessels of God's mercy. How should we feel about those around us who right now appear to be vessels of God's wrath? How do you think Israel felt about this harsh word concerning Edom? It's an interesting thing. The book of Obadiah directly talks to Edom, and yet the book was given to Israel. And so Israel was reading this message from God to their enemies. How do you think Israel would have responded You can see how this message would have brought Israel joy, that the wrongs that Edom had done to them were going to be avenged. You can see how Israel would have been happy that that the wickedness of Edom was going to be recompensed, that the days of Edom's persecution of Israel were going to end. The message of Obadiah is very similar to the message of Revelation. Trust Christ, look to the future, He will bring judgment and all things will be made right. That's a summary of the message of Obadiah. But even as Israel would have felt great hope and great joy in this message of God going to set all things right, can you not also see how there would have been a sense of sadness and a sense of grief in this message? This is not the Assyrians. This is not the Babylonians that God is addressing. This is Israel's brother. 
These are the people of Israel's kindred nation. Mount Hermon, my desire in these few weeks is that the Holy Spirit would cause our hearts to be broken for the lost. I want us to rejoice in the justice of God. And I want us to tremble at the thought of God's wrath. And I want us to find sweet security in God's jealous love for us. But I also want us to consider the fate of the wicked. And I want us to be brokenhearted. Because to be honest, I don't think any of us actually live like hell is real. We profess that it's real. We believe that it's real. I don't think we live like hell is real. Like the suffering there is real. And so my prayer is that we would spend just a few Sundays contemplating the fate of the lost to such a degree that we will not be able to keep silent about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you're saying, what practically am I hoping to see come out of this? It's a surge in evangelism, a surge in compassion towards the lost around us, towards those who are still blind and in their sins. I want to see that in me. I want to see that in us as a church. Now, we're not going to change God's eternal decree of election, but we're going to leave those things to God. Those are, those are for Him to handle. But we do know that He's called us to take the gospel to everyone and anyone, and that we are to look at everyone as someone who needs the gospel desperately. And so we're to pray, and we're to share the gospel. Why is this book important? Well, we will see in the book of Obadiah that God is a God of righteousness. We will see in the book of Obadiah that God's righteousness will triumph in the end. We will see that God's punishment of the wicked is both terrible and just. We will also see the jealous love that God has for His own. And so I want us to see and marvel at the glory of God revealed in these verses. And I especially want us to be stirred up with compassion to point our lost neighbors to repentance and trust in this God. Do you remember Jesus weeping over the lost sinners of Jerusalem? I want us to be a people who know something of what it is to weep as we consider the fate of those who do not know our Lord. So may God cause us to love Him all the more. May God cause us to be thankful for His sweet salvation. And may God cause us to be even more energized for living for His glory in this world that needs Him so much. Let's pray. And so, Father, we commit this study and the next three messages on this book to You. And we ask, Father, that You would see fit by Your Spirit to cause these things to happen. Father, help us to catch a glimpse of the reality of hell, that we would be moved with compassion towards those still in their sins. That, Father, we would find, find it almost impossible to keep our mouth shut about Christ when we live and work among people every day who do not know Him and His glories. Father, we ask that You would break our hard hearts. Father, we ask that you would give us tender consciences and that you would give us hearts that are more easily moved to mercy and pity and love. Father, bless us as we go to live this week. Help us to live for your honor. Help us to spend much time with you and 
May our times of prayer be truly precious to us. Help us to get greater glimpses of your glory in your word. Father, help us as a church to be even more united to one another, to be constantly looking for ways to bless. And Father, we ask that you would help us this week to be faithful to you as we rest in Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name.